children can be dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Philippians, the book of Philippians this morning. We're kind of in between series. And uh, I had done Philippians um, in kind of a four-week thing earlier uh, this year with the Chinese Fellowship. And I've always wanted to do this. Because I've, I, when I was in high school, I, I was studying Philippians and you know, devotions, and it really hit me how the logic of Philippians worked. And it kind of it grew my love for the Bible overall as I kind of got into Philippians. And so I've always wanted to preach Philippians, at the whole book, at one time. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So buckle up, right? Uh, and so... Um, we're going we're gonna to look at this together and, and see the kind of the logic of Philippians. It's going to be a little challenging, obviously, but I think I can work through this uh, together with you. And I'd also rec- recommend that Faith, Faith has had a scholarship where you, if you memorize the book of Philippians, um, you got uh, kind of some scholarship money. So I, I've done that as well. And Philippians is actually an easy book to memorize because it's so logical in its, uh, in its layout so again, if you're into memorizing scripture, I would encourage the book of Philippians as well. Um, so when you get into the book, first of all, you have to know why the book is written. Why is Paul writing to Philippi? He's writing from, from Rome as a prisoner. Uh, and he's writing, as you read through it for the first time, you realize that he's writing primarily because there's a conflict. There's a conflict, which he mentions later on in the book, between two ladies that evidently has gotten out. They're not sure how to handle. And, uh, and so Paul is writing in order not to say, this is, how you solve, this, is, you know, this is how you solve the problem, but this is how you think about conflict in order to solve the problem well. It's a, it's a little different pr- approach. But the, when you think about conflict, you understand that conflict is a threat, right? Nobody likes to have conflict on the horizon or in the room where you're like, okay, there's a threat to our peace, there's a threat to our kind of our security, there's a threat to our unity. And and so it feels like oftentimes conflict feels like that iceberg effect, right? Like okay, there's 10% that's going on, but there's you know, there's 90% that's going on be under the surface that's real that's really what's going on with the conflict. And in the process, Paul is interested not just in solving the conflict, but in guarding the hearts of the Philippians so that they would be able to walk through conflict well, whether it's this specific conflict or through any conflict. And this book is really a gift to the church from that perspective of how do you, in the threat or the actuality of conflict, how do you move forward? How do you, how do you think about it? And, uh, of course, Paul's goal is not just that you can move through it, but his goal is that at the end of the conflict, not just at the end of the conflict, but at the end of life, right, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant from God. Because that's one of the, the, the un, unstated threats to conflict a lot of times is, okay, I'm going to try to love this person, but if they reject me or it just doesn't go well, um, all that work, all that, all that love was for nothing. It was for naught. And God is going to look at me at the end and be like, what were you thinking? You, 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 were, you were useless to me. You, you didn't do what I, you know, what I hoped you would do. And there, there's that fear of that that, 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 that dread of that sense of, 
okay, uh, how, how can I know that, that I'm going through this in a way that's helpful, that, that's honoring to God, because I don't want to hear what were you thinking at the end. And of course, God has designed our bodies. He knows how he's designed our bodies. God has designed our bodies with certain responses to threats that are automatic. You may not realize this, but you're, you're in your brain, there's a certain portion of your brain that is never asleep. It's always working, and it's assessing what level of threat you're under. And uh, it, it doesn't matter if you're asleep or awake. You, you notice this because even soldiers will startle awake if they hear an unusual sound, right? Because there's a part of your brain that's always working, and this, the basic function of it it's, uh, that it's working in is, I want to keep this person alive, right? I want to keep myself alive. And so there's a part of your brain that's always kind of assessing threats, and when you see a threat, there's three responses that you automatically have. It's, again, it's, it's, it's subconscious in that sense, and the first way is to engage the threat by talking. You're going to talk your way through the threat, and if you can, you're, you know, that's, they call it social engagement. I'm just going to talk my way through it, and I'm going to solve it. And for uh, most of the threats in your life, you know, you, you, you can solve it in that way. But sometimes you run into threats where you, it causes that fight, flight, or freeze response. You're either going to fight, I'm going to get angry, I'm going to not just talk my way through it, but I'm going to argue my way through it. I'm going to assert my power, I'm going to force my way through it. Or flight, I'm going to flee. I, I can't handle this, I, I don't, can't talk about it, I'm just going to flee. Kind of a deeper version of that is to freeze, right? Like if you run into a situation, you see, you see both animals, right? Like, unfortunately, right, we're in Iowa. Uh, God put this in, in all mammals with a brain, right? Uh, a deer comes in front of you, sees your headlights, and what does it do? Instead of running away like it should, it freezes and you hit it, right? Because it, sometimes in the response to threat, you just freeze. You can't move, um, and you can't respond, and, and your brain creates that within you as a way of dealing with a threat that you perceive, and it's, it's subconscious, it's not like you analyze it, but your, your brain is highly attuned to be like, okay, I can, I can speak to this, I can flee from this, or I've just got to freeze, there's nothing I can do. And the last one, frankly, that within your brain, an option within your brain is to just shut your body down, to actually, actually flood your body with a, a level of kind of opiate-type materials in the body that, that, that keeps your body from, from responding too strongly to stress. Like in, in war, if, if the body gets wounded, if it's shot, the body actually slows the heart rate down, it slows the breathing down, it's trying to preserve the body as long as possible until, until you can be resolved. And I bring that up because sometimes when we get into conflict, we, we're angry, we feel guilty about our response. We're like, oh, I, I should have talked my way through this response, but I fled, Right? Or I should have handled that conflict better, but I froze. Well, that could be just your body's natural response. You shouldn't feel guilty because of that. You should just understand that God's put those responses in place. And we're not looking at the immediate responses. We're thinking about the global response to conflict that we have and how do we respond in the midst of things. And that means primarily as you think about conflict and you think about the, the, the purpose and your response in conflict, one of the biggest things you need to think about, especially in our culture, is to slow down. <laughs> to say, you know what? I don't have to solve this immediately. I can slow down, value the person, value what God is doing in my life, value where I'm at, and, and be able to slow down and work through the conflict in a way that honors God. 
So we're going to move quickly through Philippians. I just took a few minutes to, <laughs> a few more minutes than I really wanted to to introduce it. But um, we're going to move quickly through Philippians. And here's, here's why it's, you're able, we're able to do this to an extent. Because in Philippians, and if you want the outline of Philippians, I'm not going to have kind of uh, points up on the screen. But if you want the outline, you can email me or contact me, and I can email you kind of this uh, running outline of Philippians. Because what Paul does is he gives an exhortation or an idea that he wants to get across, and then he gives an example. And then he gives another exhortation, and then he gives an example of that. And so the, the logic of Philippians is, is uh, pretty clear as you work through it, and it's, and it's fairly succinct. And so that helps me to be able to preach it in one sermon. Um, but the examples are amazing to consider as you, as you look at the example and apply, you, you realize, okay, here's his exhortation, and here's how he or the person he's using as an example has applied it. And it's very helpful to understand uh, how to think through and apply Philippians then. So my encouragement to you is if you find the book fascinating, whatever, go back and look at the examples after this message at some point and, and see how those examples flow into the main exhortations from Philippians. So let's look at Philippians chapter 1 together. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, your fellowship, your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart for you all. You all are partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Here Paul starts off, and he puts, even though he, he, the Philippines know that he's writing to them about conflict, he puts this in the arena of grace. And, he, and he, in a sense, he just locates us. And it's always good in conflict to know where you're at. And here Paul says, you know what? We're all in this arena, this, this sharing of grace. This is where we're at. We're unconditionally welcomed in to God's family to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And you might say, well, I failed or they failed. Well, God is not done with any of us. <laughs> this, is the, this is the place that we are at. We, are, we stand and we rest in grace. We're unconditionally welcomed and accepted and gathered into God's, God's, God's presence, God's gift. And so, so we... That means that we're, we're all in this arena together. Grace is the space in which we operate, and the food which we eat is the metaphor that he's talking about here. And so we should be grateful for that acceptance we have received and the relationship we have given, we have been given. And just understand that this is all about this, ultimately this relationship with God. If I, I see, I perceive the threat of conflict or I'm dealing with the actuality of conflict, Yet I still stand in grace. God still loves me. God is still working in me. God's still working in the situation. He hasn't given up on it. This is where I stand, and this is where I can speak and operate from. And, you, and, you ha and when you're in conflict, you need that reassurance. You need that security. You need to know where you're at. And he's saying we're in grace. He goes on. And here's, and we saw this in Philippians as well. Paul prays, right, for the Ephesians. I'm sorry, he, we saw this in Ephesians as well. 
Paul prays for the Ephesians, and then the Holy Spirit answers his prayer through the words that he gives Paul to share with the Ephesians. So here, Paul's prayer for the Philippians is answered, as we'll see, through the, the words that he gives, the Holy Spirit gives to Paul for the Philippians. Notice his prayer, verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice what he's saying here is, at the end, what I want for you is to be filled, to be fruitful, to be filled up with the fruit of righteousness. So that you come and God says, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end. And my prayer is that, that your love, your, he's, he's assuming that they love their brother. <laughs> they love their sisters, right? And he's assuming that they love God, but they're not always sure. And we're not always sure in conflict what we're supposed to do in relation to our love. And he's saying, he's saying, I'm praying that your love would abound in knowledge and discernment, right? That you can, you can judge what is excellent, that you can, you can know what is best to do in the situation. So here's the big idea for Philippians. Paul desires their love to grow through discernment and so be filled with the fruit of righteousness when Christ returns, even in the face, in the face of suffering and conflict. Paul desires their love to grow through discernment and be filled with the fruit of righteousness when Christ returns. And so, so that's, that's what Paul wants for the Philippians. That's ultimately what the Holy Spirit wants for us is that as we look at conflict, as we face uncertainty, we face difficulties, we face either the actuality or the threat of conflict, that we would know how to proceed in love by discerning how to think and how to act. And so that at the end, when we stand before Christ, we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Paul, for between here and verse um, 12 and verse 27... He gives his own example. He talks about three different ways that he has had to practice discernment himself. And he talks about how he had to practice discernment in his imprisonment. That, his, that the guards, he's like, how can I be joyful and how can I discern about my love when I'm in prison? And he's like, well, look, at least the guards are getting saved here. These guards are hearing the gospel. Not only that, he's practicing discernment in regards to his rivals. He's like, there's people out there that are practice, preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it out of strife. They're against me for some reason. He doesn't list all the reasons. And he says, I'm, I'm willing to think of practicing discernment about how I think about my rivals. And also, he, he says, I'm, I'm thinking about my death, the possibility that, that my imprisonment could end in death. How do I think, how do I practice discernment about that? And so he gives three different examples of how to practice discernment so they can understand how, to, how he, it's, Paul himself is practicing this as well. And then he gets to the main exhortation of the book. Verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
And so here we have love's direction. How do, I, how do I practice discernment? First of all, by knowing the direction that I need to go. And we see here that love's direction is to seek unity and working together. He says it three different ways, right? Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying, be unified. Seek the first thing in conflict to realize is I need to, to realize that my direction is that I need to be seeking unity. I, I need to pursue unity with other believers in the face of conflict. That makes sense overall, right? This is logical. Of course, if we're going to be doing this together, we need to seek unity when there's the threat of conflict. So then... And he moves on from that exhortation and says, but it's just a good reminder. It's a good understanding of the direction. And then he's like, well, how do you do this? And this is where that discernment comes in. How do you practice seeking unity? Notice verse, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any con- comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, by, my joy by being of the same love, having the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, okay, be unified. There's a lot of reasons to be unified. How do you practice it? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in, in the fashion of a man, the likeness of a man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we have, in a sense, love's challenge to pursue unity by looking for others' interests as well as our own. My my goal then is in pursuing unity is not to just think, okay, what does God want? But to look at my brother, my sister, and say, okay, what what are their interests? I have to assume that God's grace is in them, that we're standing in grace together, that that they might be wrong in some fashion, but that they have some interests in in pursuing love together. I need to understand what those interests are. I'm willing to sit down and listen to them, understand what those interests are, understand what my interests are, and, and seek to pursue unity in that way. Now, this is, this is key because sometimes some, we, have different, we have different personalities approach this in different ways. Some of us are more interested in just finding out what the other person's interests are and saying, okay, sure, no problem. I'll do whatever you want to do. And we don't consider our own interests. Like, what, what, what do you really want in this situation? And then you get further into the situation. You're like, sure, I'll do whatever you want. And then you realize, but I don't, want real, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I'm actually doing what you I should do, but then I really, I don't really want to do this. This doesn't fit me or what I want. And, and we get caught up, in, uh, kind of a term for it, it's just merging with the other person. You don't, you don't understand who you are and how God has made you and what you, God wants you to do. All you're willing to do is what someone else wants you to do. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying just, just do whatever, what, what everyone else wants to do. He's saying you've got to know what God is wanting you to do, how God wants you to operate, and what, how, what you're bringing to the table. 
And at the same time then, some of us are more interested in just, I know what I want, you get in line with me and we're good. You know what I mean? If, if, if everyone would just follow what I, I say should happen, the world would be a better place, right? And Paul is saying here to you, he's saying, no, look, you need to be, realize that other people, God has gifted them and, and burdened them with certain interests and abilities and, and, and goals and loves, and you should be willing to listen to them and understand what those interests are and consider how did those interests and your interests come together in a way that glorifies God. And that's, Paul is saying, that's how we practice unity with discernment is by putting this into practice. And he gives us the ultimate example, right, of Jesus Christ. He's like, look at Jesus Christ, right? He was God. Everything he, sh- he wants to happen should happen. <laughs> Nothing that he wants to happen shouldn't happen. And yet he was willing to say, I don't, I don't want to be considered God. I don't want to be viewed as God. I'm willing to set aside the form of God, become the form of servant, be made like a human being, and come, as we just celebrated, right, like a baby, <laughs> Like just any other human baby, no one would necessarily know that he's God in the flesh. He didn't have a halo. You know, he didn't, his skin didn't glow. You know, he was just a normal human being who came, lived among us, obeyed his father, even to the point of going to the cross so that he could rescue us. He could take care of our ultimate interests, death, and solve that problem for us. And because he did that, because he was willing to obey his father, to humble himself like that, to look out for our interests as well as his own, God exalts him, right, above every other name. And so this is the the pattern, the hope that we have is that as we practice looking not just for our own interests, but also to the interests of others and seeking to put that together, we would obey our father just like Jesus did. And that we would be ultimately exalted, not by our success, not by our wisdom, not by our power, but by God who lifts up the humble, right? And so love's challenge is to pursue this because, frankly, this is hard. This is not easy. It is not easy to come back. Why why is that true? Because, first of all, in conflict, not everybody's upfront about what their interests are. Sometimes they don't even know what their interests are until they realize that they're in conflict with you. You know, husbands and wives know this all the time. Because you stumble into a conflict. You're like, well, I just, I just did that. You know, I'll just tell a funny story on us. Fortunately, everyone's, everyone, no, one, no one got sick this week, right? Kaisa, no. uh, so, uh, so Greta's had some headaches or some, some problems, and so... Uh, she grabbed some frozen peas earlier this week and, uh, and, 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 and used them to kind of, you know, as a kind of a cooling action on her, on her head. I think it was on her head, actually. She, oh, that's what it was. She, she fell down a couple times and bumped her head. She had a bump on her head. She put frozen peas on there to, you know, get it to stop, to not be swollen, to stop hurting. And, uh, and so yesterday morning, I'm cleaning up with the kids. Mom's not home. We're cleaning up. And I see this bag of peas lying on the ground. I'm like, oh, that's probably from a couple of days ago. Um, I pick it up. It's room temperature. And I'm like, hmm, I probably should throw this away, but I'm not sure what Amy wants to do here. Maybe this is kind of our now new sack of frozen peas that are used for whenever 
someone gets hurt. And so I just threw them back in the, in the freezer. Well, Kaisa came over, and, and she was being kind, and she's like, I'll make shepherd's pie for supper. <laughs> so, so she makes shepherd's pie, which includes peas, if you don't know. She grabs the frozen peas that are now refrozen. She doesn't know it any better. She grabs the frozen peas and throws them in the shepherd's pie, makes the shepherd's pie. Uh, we're, we're, we're gathering together to eat this, and I'm like, which peas did you use? You know? And, and, they're, and they're like, the peas in the freezer. And I'm like, those peas? Like, I, I opened the freezer. Yeah, you know, the bag that I put in there is now half full. I'm like, uh, yeah, those, those peas are... Those peas were, like, sitting upstairs this morning, and I threw them back in the freezer. And, and my wife was like, why would you do that? And I was like, because I just wasn't sure what to do with them exactly. And, uh, and, uh, and we had already eaten a couple of bites of, the, you know, we're discussing it as we're eating, and all of us are slowly like, uh, let's not eat this anymore, you know. And... Uh, I had to apologize for obviously throwing the peas in there without telling anyone, right? Because you just get into conflicts about stuff that is just like, well, you weren't expecting certain things. You were expecting other things to happen that didn't happen. And so you, when you get into those things, you have to be willing to listen to others' interests as well as your own. Like, I just wanted to be vindicated that I, I was okay. I, I really didn't mean to mess up the entire dinner and waste a pound of hamburger and all, you know. I just want to be vindicated that I did the right thing. But I, I, I was feeling that, well, you know, you probably should have thought that one through a little bit better, Will. You know, come on, you know. And so it's, it's a hard practice. It takes being willing, in a sense, to go to death, the death of, of people's image of me and people's understanding of me. I've got to be willing to go to that kind of level. Why? In order to listen to others' interests as well as my own. Because listening is not just, I heard you. Listening is, I heard you and I understand and I value your opinion, right? And that is a hard place to get to. It's not easy. That's why he uses Jesus going to the cross as the ultimate example. Because if it was an easy solution here, he would use some other less radical example. And so, Paul here is challenging us. You want to pursue unity? You want to know that your love is effective? You have to be willing to consider others' interests as well as your own. And then, because that is hard, he moves in chapter 2, verse 10, to how to do this. And so I've, I've, I've kind of labeled this as point number three, love's discernment. The mindset you need to cultivate discernment and pursue unity. How do, I, how do I continually do this? How do I look out for others' interests and not get weary in well-doing, so to speak? So notice what he says, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And what he's saying here is, look, I could tell you how to solve the problem you have between these two ladies and say, do this, I'm the apostle, do this. But he's saying, I'm not always going to be with you. And now you still need to pursue obedience to God and work out this. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Now he starts off and he says here, work out your salvation. He says, you're going to have to work this out. You're going to have to do this. And he says, with fear and trembling. Another, this is kind of a Greek idiom for the idea of the word that we use, anxiety. So he's saying, you, you, have certain, you should be anxious to work out your own salvation. Why is that important? Because he's going to use the word anxiety later on in chapter 4 when he says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay? So, so he, he, what he's doing here is he's locating your anxiety. He's saying all the things that you could be anxious about, like how's this going to go? What are people going to think of me? What are, what are, how's the relationship with the person going to go? Those are all potential anxieties that you have in conflict. He's like, locate your anxiety primarily on God, God, is, God, is, God is working in me, and I'm anxious to work this out in my life. But he also relocates us. He reminds us where we're at, right? Chapter, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the first kind of mindset that we remind ourselves is, if we're going to pursue this discernment, is that we're still, we stand in grace. God is still at work in us. He's taking us all the way back to the beginning of the book. He's still saying, hey, the God who is at work in you and will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ is still at work in you in conflict. You need to remind yourself of this. You need to understand that his grace is with you when you're like, well, I'm not sure I can understand their perspective, and I'm not sure I want to understand their perspective, or I'm not sure I can state mine very well. I'm not sure I, I, I even understand what I want very well. Well, you're st- but you still stand in grace. God is at work here. This is, this is where you're at. And it's also a good reminder here because he says both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Part of the reminder of grace here is it's not your responsibility to solve the conflict. It's not your responsibility to solve the conflict. Because sometimes you can't. Grace doesn't require you to solve the conflict. Grace requires you to remember what God is doing in the midst of it. And if you get caught up in, okay, I'm in the midst of conflict, I've got to solve the problem you're not standing in grace. You're not operating in grace. It's God who's going to solve the conflict. He's going to give you the thoughts, the words. The, the, he's going to soften their heart. He's going to soften your heart. He's going to do the work of whatever it's going to take and however long it's going to take to get it done. It might take a while. But his grace is what you operate in. And this is where you stand. This is what you operate in. And, and, and if you don't, again, start from here, even as you seek to endure in the midst of considering other people's interests as well as your own, you're going to run out of steam quickly. Another exhortation that he gives really quickly here is he says, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud, I may boast, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm operating this way. I, I want to boast that you're operating this way as well. He's doing two things with this. He's, giving a, he's telling you something to avoid. He's reminding you to stand in grace. And then negatively, he's saying, don't murmur or complain. You know, one of the biggest things in conflict, right, is to murmur or complain about either how hard it is, how, how difficult the other person is being, uh, but how much you would rather not be doing this right now. We get caught up in this, right? We, we grumble about the difficulties of conflict. 
And they are difficult. It's not saying they're not, but he's saying we, we should do these things without grumbling or complaining because we, we want unity. We want to pursue this. This is what God has given us to do, and the challenge of doing it is actually a part of the grace that God is doing in our lives. The other thing that he's doing here is he's saying, honor those who walk this way. He's, he's lifting people up. He's saying, I want to boast in people like this. Boast in people who handle conflict and don't murmur and complain about the situation, but simply seek to, to show their light, to be light in a difficult world. We understand we run into conflicts. We run into difficulties. People don't treat us the way we expect them to. And yet, we can do that. We can work through it without grumbling or complaining about it. And so then, he gives three examples of this. He gives himself as an example, he gives Timothy an example, and he gives Epaphroditus as an example. Okay? Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus um, are all examples of people who, as, as he says about Timothy, look out not, on, not only for their interests, but also for others' interests. How many people are like that? You know? And he's, what he's doing, he ends that by saying, honor people like this. He's, he's honoring them, and he's, in a sense, encouraging the church. Notice people like this in your church who, who run into conflict but handle it without murmuring, without complaining, because, again, the community culture that we set matters. We understand that conflict is hard, that you're going to run into it often, and yet, at the same time, those of us who, who do it without complaining help the whole body to just handle stuff better. Because we're operating grace and working with that together. So we should lift up people like this, who do this well. That's the mindset we should have of avoiding complaining and noticing people who do. And then he gets to kind of his concluding mindset exhortation. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and to for, say for you. He's probably just saying, I'm going to rehearse some things about the, the Judaizers that is, is, is not anything new to you, but it's, it's just a good reminder. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the uh, evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks... He has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Because circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What is he saying here, ultimately? It's a lot of words, but what's he saying? Ultimately, he's saying this. I would rather view myself as being on God's side than trying to figure out if, if, if you're on my side or not. I want to put myself as being found on God's side. I'm on, on his side. This is, this is not about a conflict between you and me, ultimately. I'm not setting myself up as, as antagonistic to you. I'm interested in, I'm in Christ. 
I want, I'm, he's, he's working here. He's operating. I want to be on his side. I want to be found on his side. Not, I, I don't want to defend myself. I don't want to be like, well, I have all these religious credentials, so you should just listen to me. I'm an apostle. You should listen to me. He's saying the Judaizers who are like, hey, we're, we want all Christians to be Jews. They have a position, and they're taking it, and they're holding it, and they're fighting for it but they've never considered whether that's God's side or not. I want to be found on God's side. And in conflict, when you're, you're seeking to, to think about, okay, what are his interests and what are my interests? What are her interests and what are my interests? Well, let's triangulate that a little bit here and what are God's interests? I want to be found on his side. And I'm not saying that you're not on his side. I'm just trying to think about placing myself on God's side and how God wants to operate. Being found in Christ rather than the law is my identity. It, it means that I'm not seeking vindication for myself, my actions, my way of thinking about things. Because I'm trusting in Christ and who he's making me to be. I'm seeking my fulfillment not in vindicating my ideas, but in seeking my fulfillment and knowing that I'm in Christ and I'm walking with him. And he gives himself as an example here. He, he gives himself as an example, and then he gives a negative example as enemies of the cross. And just let's look at this example because it's a, a, a part of the argument here. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's like, basically he's saying, look, in this process of picking sides and in some sides, what I'm realizing is I haven't arrived yet. If in conflict you decide, I've arrived, I know the answer, I'm, I, I know what's good here, then you, you've picked a side. But Paul is saying, I'm placing myself in Christ and realizing I haven't arrived there yet. I'm not fully with Christ. I'm not resurrected. And so if I haven't arrived, then I don't know everything about the situation. But instead, he says, I but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and starting forward to what lies ahead. Primarily here he's talking about, he's saying, I'm forgetting the fact that I was a Jew, that I had all these credentials that made me like, I know I'm right, just, you know, just listen to me, I, I, I'm the spiritual authority here. And instead he's saying, I'm looking forward to the resurrection, I'm, I'm headed there. And since I haven't arrived yet at the resurrection, but I'm, I want to head there, I, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And by doing that, he, he merges what he's saying in chapter 3 what he, with what he's already said in chapter 2. He's saying, I want God to call me upward to, to honor me because I'm putting others' interests as important as my own. And I want to be found in Christ in the process of doing that. I'm pressing toward that. And he calls all of them. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal also this to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have detained. He's saying, let's, let's keep, keep this at least true and operate from there. And then he says, imitate me in this, but notice there's a negative example. He talks about enemies of the cross. And by framing it in terms of the cross, he's tying us back again to Philippians chapter 2. He's saying, if you don't take a, a cross mindset here, you're not going to be willing to give up your own ideas to serve others. You just aren't. And there's people like that who are, want to be satisfied in their own vindication. In conflict, I want to be proved right. 
And that's being an enemy of the cross. Resurrection is the key. Resurrection is the thing we are headed for. And so he he frames it in this way. I could say more, but I'm going to run out of time. I'm not going to get to chapter 4. Notice chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Here, here he gets to the main point, right? The application of all he said so far, in a sense, is he's saying to these two ladies, hey, come to agreement in the Lord. Find unity together. And then he adds this, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who names, whose names are in the book of life. He's like, hey, we're all in the book of life together. Let's, let's find a way to work together. And in a sense, he says he uses the word true companion. That's probably one of the pastors of the church. It's, it's hard to tell exactly who this is. But, but it's, it's fascinating here because what, it, what it's partially saying is, hey, sometimes it takes more than you and the other person to solve the conflict. You need other eyes on the scenario. It helps to have more eyes bringing wisdom to solve conflict. The other thing that it's pointing out here, which he's demonstrating all the way through the book is he's, he's giving examples of people who've worked through conflict and he's obviously pointing to this true companion in a sense he knows this person he's saying look you've worked through com- conflict before you've worked through conflict in this way so help them do the same thing again in conflict you need good examples of how to work through conflict you absolutely do one of the challenges right in families, as you're, as you're growing and, and emerging as a family, is you're, you oftentimes just bring, bring your, your family's example of how to work through conflict to the table. And they're bringing their f- family's concept of how to work through conflict to the table. And if both of those are broken, then you're in serious trouble. You know what I mean? It's hard to work through conflict. And he's, that's why we need examples. We need real-life examples. That's why he's listed Paul and himself as an example. He's listed Christ as an example. He's listed you know, Timothy as an example, Epaphrodite as an example. He's going to use the Philippians themselves as an example here in a minute. He's saying you have, to, you have to look and see and find those examples and honor them, lift them up. Then he concludes after that application with verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here is, in a sense, there's a lot he's saying here, but he's tying it back to rejoicing in the Lord again. At the same time, he's saying that kind of the negative thing that he wants them to avoid in the process of rejoicing in the Lord is to be anxious. He's saying, look, there's a lot of things you can be anxious about in conflict, the threat of conflict, the actualities of conflict. So don't be anxious about those things. Instead, seek, seek joy by being reasonable. Be being gentle. Remembering the Lord is at hand. He's going to return soon. This, this isn't going to last forever. You can be gentle a little while longer. And, 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 and any of the anxieties you have, go to God in prayer. 
Take those, those anxieties that you have in conflict and take them to God and be God, like, God, I'm praying about these things. I know you're with me, he says, with thanksgiving, right? I know your grace is with me. I know you can help me. Um, I, I, I thank you for that, but I still, these are the things I'm concerned about. These are the things I'm worried about. Why is he saying this? Because in conflict, we can let our anxieties control our behavior, right? We can be afraid. Oh, my wife, she's going to, she, this conflict is going to cause us to have an irreparable break in our relationship, and we're never going to be close again. And so how do we act? We clam up. We shut down. We stop talking. Why? Because we're just afraid. Or sometimes we get angry. Like, it's your fault. You're, you know, if, I'm going to guilt them into realizing that, <laughs> that we need to circle the wagons here. Who cares about the conflict? Because we're angry. <laughs> we're, we're, but it's, it, our, the anger is driven by fear. And so we speak in ways that aren't helpful and we let that anxiety control us rather than taking everything to the Lord in prayer. And he says here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. He's saying God's peace can guard you as you take these things to the Lord in prayer because you're not going to be able to figure everything out all at once. And God is using that to help you realize that he is part of the process that he wants to be a part of the process, that again, that you're standing in grace. This is about grace and knowing that you're in grace and walking in grace. And then it seems like he could have like prayed his prayer in Philippians chapter one and then just said, verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, because here's the discernment, right? He finally gets to the discernment. <laughs> like think about these things, discern how you should think. But you can't do this discernment well if you don't place yourself well and you don't give yourself the, the encouragement, the, the, the diligence, the, the, the endurance to keep on in the midst of it, okay? So he places the discernment at the very end because partially it's a matter of realizing that I'm discerning in, in order to produce peace and not anxiety. What's my place here in discernment? My, my discernment is not how do I prove I'm right, right? Because you could interpret love, have love grow in discernment so that you can be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So I'm going to discern how I'm right all the time. <laughs> then I can just stand as like, God, you should honor me because I was right all the time in my life. I love people in the way I thought was best because I was right all the time, you know? But he's saying, no, that's not the way to think about this. We, we discern, in a sense, what he's saying here is, and I've heard sermons where this is globalized, like like, I should be thinking what's true, honorable, just, and evaluating everything that comes at me through that grid. That's not a bad application of this, but really the context is demanding. No, he's saying in conflict, in the situation, when you're in conflict with your husband, your wife, your coworker, whoever, church member, think about what's true in the situation. Think about what's honorable. How have they behaved honorably? How have you behaved honorably in the situation? How have they behaved justly in the situation? What are the ideas that are, they're, they're proposing about the situation that are just? What are, what are the ideas that are, they're proposing that are lovely? You're, you're thinking about the, that conflict and you're finding all the good <laughs> that can be found in the midst of the conflict so that you can pull that out and bring that forward and background all the potential problems that you're running into. That's the discernment that he's talking about here. If there's anything excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'm not thinking about my, my quote-unquote enemy here, my, the person I'm in conflict with, the threat. 
and, and finding all the negative things about them and all the ways that they're messing up. I'm finding all the ways that they're praiseworthy and all the ways that they're lovely, all the things I can commend about what they're doing in the situation. I'm discerning that in order, he says, and, the, and, and then also practicing certain things. He doesn't say what those are because he's, again, appealing to his example that they've already seen. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And then he adds this Im- immense phrase, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, this is about grace. God's presence in your life. And as you practice and discern and pray and are gentle and don't let anxiety control your actions, God works in the situation. It doesn't mean everything's solved. It doesn't mean everything's hunky-dory, to use a great island phrase. But it means that you can keep your heart fixed on the joy of knowing God, fixed on the joy of walking with God, fixed on the joy of knowing his grace. And then the last part of the book here is, again, just an example of this. And I want to just show you a a quick example of how this works, right? Notice verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You're like, well, I, this doesn't seem to be any, any conflict. You know, he's just talking about his, but if you think about it, how many relationships break down, not because somebody said something really mean, because somebody stopped doing something that someone else expected them to do, right? Well, you didn't text me. You didn't call me, you know. I thought you were going to do this, and you didn't do it. And all of a sudden, we have this conflict in our heads because they didn't do what we expected them to do. And Paul here is using that example on himself. He's like, I was obviously somewhat tempted to think, well, the Philippians haven't gotten around to sending me. I've had a lot of my my supporters drop off. The Philippians might be one of them. You know what I mean? He's tempted to think that way. But instead, he's like, I've, I've kept my focus correct. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. I can learn uh, the source of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's like, I can be content. I don't need you to support me to have a good relationship with you. That's not what this is about, Paul is saying. I just want fruit that abounds to your account. Again, he's saying, these are the praiseworthy things. These are the things that are pure. I just want good things for, before God for you. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm keeping my heart pure here in regards to how I think about this. Does that mean that he's saying, I don't, again, by what he's saying, he hints at what he's not saying. He's saying, at least stray thoughts came through his head that were like, well, I, I don't know if I can handle it if the Philippians don't, support me. You see, you see the difference here? He's not saying he doesn't have stray thoughts come through his head. What he's saying is he practices discernment with the thoughts that come through his head and says, these are the ones I'm going to focus on. <laughs> these are how I'm going, to take, I'm going to take every thought captive to Christ. And so this is Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for myself, right? 
that my love, that your love would grow. So that when Christ returns, he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You had difficult choices to make. You ran into some conflicts. You sought to do good in other people's lives. And you did that well. And you did that by discerning, by practicing discernment on a regular basis. You pursued unity, even when it was hard, when you had to listen to someone else's interests and you thought about your own interests and how do we bring those two together. You, you, you worked through that and you did that by understanding you were in grace. The grace surrounds you, it operates within you. It's the place you stand. God loves you regardless of whether this conflict goes well or not. But you don't complain about it. Instead, you, you seek to be found in Christ, not vindicating yourself, but vindicating him. And you sought good examples. And you rejoiced by praying through your anxieties, by being gentle, knowing Christ is going to return, and by discerning, how am I thinking about this conflict? How can I pursue peace? I want God to be present in the midst of this. That's my prayer for you. We all run into conflicts on daily basis. Some of them are as small as peas put into a freezer that mess up a meal. And some of them are a lot bigger, a lot more challenging, a lot more traumatic than that. But in the midst of all of those, God is still God. He is still at work. He hasn't failed. He's not frustrated. He knows how this is all going to go. You can trust him. His grace is there. So pursue unity. <laughs> and just like Christ, seek to look out for others' interests as well as your own. So that we can stand together with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To say, this is what God has done among us. He has delivered us from death by Christ dying on the cross for us. He's, he's forgiven our sins. The, the times that we treat each other poorly, the times we, we, we mess up, he's forgiven that. And we can stand together, not on the basis of our goodness, not on the basis of our greatness, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us and in us and through us. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Will you live that? Will you walk that? Will you take the book of Philippians? There's so much more there that I couldn't unpack. But will you kind of take it and walk through it and think about it and see the richness that is there? There's so much there. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the conflict between Yodi and Syntyche because... It helped us to see your grace in new ways. Helping us to think carefully about how we think, what we do, how we live, how we glorify you. Because we want to stand in your presence, the one who has saved us. The one who has this plan for eternity for us. And we want to stand in your presence one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of your Lord. Oh, Lord. Honest, we're, we're afraid, Lord, that, that the conflicts that we get into, that we'll be failures at, 
that will mess up, that will hurt others, that will hurt ourselves, that will hurt you. Help us to remember that your grace is always there, that it never fails, that you are at work and you are not done with us even when we do fail. And so we can help us to rest in your grace and help us to, our love to grow in discernment as we practice loving one another well. In your son's name.